Welcome to the Want to Learn podcast. I'm your host, Francis Tapon, and today I have Tomas Higby. He's a friend of mine I've known for 20 years, and I haven't seen him for seven years or six or seven years because I've been roaming around Africa for most of that time. And he has been living in Chile for over four years and just came back to the Bay Area for a visit. And so he's right here in front of me. And we are going to talk about the environment. Welcome, Tomas Higby. Thank you very much, Francis. Happy to be here. Okay, so I asked you earlier today, it's like, you know, kind of what is your passion and your deepest passion? And you're talking about the environment. And so I just thought you're somebody who studied the environment tremendously and give a little bit of background of what got you into it to begin with. I guess it, I started when I was a kid in Boy Scouts and just spending them, uh, one trip every month, basically all growing up and developing a passion for the outdoors. Uh, I later went to University of Oregon and studied environmental politics and uh, fell in love with uh, the natural environment of Oregon. And um, uh, I was actually on the way to study to become a ranger uh, or, or forestry as a whole. And that was the original reason that brought me up that way. Because um, I thought that would be a good legacy, and I've always loved plants. So there are so many different environmental disasters that people, you know, keep people up at night, environmentalists up at night. Which is the one that worries you the most? Global warming is by far the biggest threat. There's about half a dozen very serious ones, another dozen um, not as critical, but all of them combined, they're all sort of, I think, connected. They're all um, a tapestry that all weaves together. But by far, uh, carbon emissions is the biggest threat. Why is that the biggest threat? I mean, I realize it might be a stupid question for everybody, you know, rising sea levels and all that kind of stuff. But what is it specifically that you think, because there's a lot of implications for climate change. What is it that you worry about the most? Well, it's hard to say which matters more in terms of the effects it will have. We're talking about, I don't know, 40 different effects, whether that's uh, increase in viruses, uh, the loss of fresh water in, in, in the Andes and Himalayas, etc., whether that's the explosion of uh, mosquitoes and uh, beetle blight in the Pacific Northwest, for example, which is destroying all the Douglas fir. So there's a whole lot of them. But there's not one that in particular that stands above the others in your mind. Um, they're all coming on full force and they're all going to be catastrophic. So it really doesn't matter prioritizing one catastrophe from another. When you say they're all going to happen, I mean, I guess part of you has got to be an optimist because anybody who works in environmentalism has to be an optimist at heart in order to actually devote themselves to the field. Otherwise, you're going to go insane. If you're a pessimist and you think it's all hope is lost, then you're not going to be an environmentalist. So you have to have some hope that somehow we can kind of change the situation, right? Absolutely. And um, it, it actually, yeah, that's a good point, because for me, there are sort of two main themes. I sort of see the world in a uh, parabola. On one end, you have the oncoming, almost seemingly inevitable collapse of the environment, and on the other end, you have the potential solution, which is related to technological advancement, um, the exponential growth of knowledge and understanding science as a whole, understanding human activity, interaction. Um, I, I sort of broadly put it under the category of the singularity. So basically, can the singularity move fast enough that we're innovating a solution to, to outperform the, the consequences of environmental catastrophe? 
And so I sort of run my whole life based on these two overarching streams and to find it's kind of like a race, which one will supersede the other and can we solve our, our problems via this the singularity? Because it's not going to happen through politics or social change, I don't think. You know, I was just listening to a fantastic podcast by, um, it's called The End of the World with Josh. I can't remember his last name right now. He's the guy who does uh, How It Works or something like that. And he was talking about the great filter and and the we just have to get past this great filter for humanity to be able to get beyond this danger zone of us destroying ourselves or being destroyed by an asteroid or whatever and stuff like that. And the same thing, the singularity, kind of like this point where once we cross that threshold, then all of a sudden we're quote unquote safe. But I'm starting to question that notion because once we get more power, why couldn't we then create more destruction? In other words, once we can harness the power of the stars, why can't we just create black holes and destroy ourselves that way or, you know, fling asteroids to each other and do all sorts of other or create pandemics that jump across planets you know just because we become a extra you know extra planetary species that goes beyond the earth and or does the singularity doesn't necessarily protect us i think from even greater disasters with more power we can do more powerful things on an evil way no well, right and i don't want to assume that the singularity is a panacea because it's not and there's a lot of questionable issues about whether that will be the ultimate solution for us um it may just create bigger problems yeah i tend to see it like this though it, it could but i tend to see the trajectory of progress slash technology for the last 300 years has been i don't know maybe a 85 percent solution and another 15 percent additional problems and that ratio has been fairly consistent throughout this whole uh, trajectory. And I don't see that likely to change. I think that the same ratio will continue to be our future. So I'm a little bit more optimistic about how technology will move forward. So yeah, it is going to create more problems, but it's going to happen. There's no way to stop it. And so maybe like Elon Musk, you just need to mitigate those those potential problems because it's going to happen no matter what. But a Luddite could see that ratio in the opposite sense. They might say technology has created 85% problems and only 15% solutions. That's what a Luddite would say, right? Right. A Luddite's, what, 3% of the population? And maybe 13% of the population has a similar view. So, yeah, that tends to be the way. But I don't know. I'm a Silicon Valley boy, so I have a different opinion, I guess. I don't know. Right. Okay, so then let's get into solutions. I mean, obviously nobody else, you know, Al Gore is not listening to this podcast right here, but what are the, to you, the the big solutions? Uh, what would say the one, two, three things that need to be, need to happen that are realistic, reasonable solutions to the global warming climate change problem? Uh, I think of two. I think of this Harvard professor who just recently, uh, with his team out of Vancouver, Canada, have just recently created a, carbon scrubber, scrubber that can extract carbon and uh, sequestrate it for 100 bucks a metric ton. That's a game changer. So if we have the Herculean task of creating the, these machines to be able to do that, um, I think that's you know a direct, immediate thing that can, we can begin implementing right from the get-go. Okay, and because it's just so cheap, therefore we can sequester all this carbon and and that will be the solution. Yeah, it's a simple engineering 
uh, problem basically in a, in a simple engineering solution. Very straightforward, very simple. Um, just a matter of the wherewithal and the capital to inst- install it. And get it Can you drill down a little bit more about what exactly is involved in this cheap device? I mean, relatively cheap solution, so I say, or affordable, so I say, maybe is the best thing. Um, I forget the whole the, the the technical sides of it, but basically it's sorry. Is it a like a TED talk or is it how, how did you learn about it? Um, it was a, a research paper that that came out basically where they have fans and the fans are sucking in atmosphere basically and throwing it over a substrate of water with some other particular benign chemical, and by moving mass volumes of this of, of wind basically over this water, it grabs the carbon and pulls it down. Very okay. simple. Very simple. And then that carbon can be used for fuel or for other purposes as well. You know, Arthur C. Clarke, the great science fiction writer, predicted that in the by the end of the century, and this is way before global warming was even a thing. He made this prediction, I think, in like 1970 or something like that, mm-hmm. before global warming was really on anybody's radar. And he said that our biggest problem will be the lack of carbon in the atmosphere. In other words, we're going to have to, it will be global cooling. We're going to be trying to find ways to kind of warm up the earth because we're going to be using carbon as an energy source, the carbon in the air. Carbon dioxide would be somehow harnessed and then processed and actually used for a industrial power source. And I just thought it was a fascinating prediction because it's like, huh, wouldn't that be funny if in the end, we're sequestering so much carbon or we're consuming it so much out of the air that, in fact, we go to global cooling and we send off another ice age. <laughs> and, and a lot of people had, not a lot of people, but several prominent people had those particular uh, predictions. And, of course, the science didn't bear that out. But, of course, those were interesting thought experiments and insightful. But, of course, everything has to be based on science. I go back and I think about the other point I would add to, to this particular um, potential silver bullet, if you will, is the fact that we're now moving into an era of, of abundant energy. And uh, I remember uh, I recommended you read Jeremy Rifkin, and you weren't so big fan of him, but I think he's gaining more and more traction as, as things go on. But um, he talks about the fact that we're going to have unlimited, virtually free energy in the next 50 years. And I think of someone like uh, Roy, Roy, Roy Kurzweil, Ray Kurzweil, who was saying that um, if, if everything's doubling, let's say in this case, renewable energy, which is now at 1% of, of our energy needs, 1%, but it's doubling every two years, that's only 15 or seven doublings to go from 1% to 100%, which is 15 years. So in theory, and I'm assuming we're not going to increase our energy consumption, which is incorrect, obviously, but in theory, we should be 100% energy independent based on renewable energies i.e solar in 15 years well that's assuming again you like you said that we're not going to increase our expansion so a more conservative right. estimate so would be something 20 years 20 years we will be completely a carbon-free economy in this country and possibly the rest of the world well that's pretty optimistic but let's hope uh, it's true i mean it, like you say sometimes you can get uh surprised by how this exponential growth can really come from out of nowhere and all of a sudden really get uh, 
surprise people. Right. And, you know, the singularity has been poo-pooed for decades now, but it gets less and less so because it has an incredible accuracy rate and it continues to, to verify itself year after year. And so, of course, the bandwagon is growing. And I think about, for example, um, was the AEIF, the, um, the think tank that does energy consumption estimates, and they're constantly redoing their their prognostications because they're completely incorrect because they still haven't locked onto the singularity. They're still doing it based on this simple logarithmic scale versus the new algorithmic scale, which is exponential. Now, speaking about exponential growth, one of the big thing that irritates me about so many environmentalists is that they don't talk about what I consider the elef- big elephant in the room. And I know you know about it because you don't have children. And I've always said that if you're a real hardcore environmentalist, you don't have children. And you don't have children, Tomas. Uh, so talk a little bit about that elephant in the room and why we never seem to talk about it. And do you think it's the elephant in the room or do you disagree with me? Do you think, you know, oh, no, Francis, it's just uh, just a minor thing. To me, out of all the different levers that we have to control the environment, the biggest biggest level is our population growth sure so uh, what you're basically addressing is the moral issues uh, integrity or personal responsibility as it relates to your big values agenda or your big vision for what uh, what we should be doing as a as a race no i'm not saying me personally i'm just saying that if your purpose is to kind of preserve or enhance the environment and keep making that nature the uh, outside of human beings uh, take a big play a bigger role into re, you know all this other stuff that a classic environmentalist likes. I don't think there's anything more that impacts the environment than our human population growth. In other words, the efforts that some environmentalists have to do what I consider minor things, let's say like just recycle, use you know turn down your thermostat and do that kind of stuff is don't live like Donald Trump. I think we could all live like Donald Trump if there was only half a billion of us on the planet instead of seven and a half billion. Yeah, like sort of maybe a deep ecology perspective. (laughs) Well, I mean, I just think that it's going to be very hard to convince people to go back and live like in the Stone Age or any kind of to go to regress. Human beings, typically they want to consume more energy. That's been historical, the thing. And it would be pretty much the first time in history, if we ever consume less energy per capita. Yes, that's that's true. Um, you and I have also had discussions about uh, Paul Ehrlich and Paul Simon. Was that his name? Simon and Ehrlich. I, remember, I can't remember the guy's first name. I, I don't know if it's Simon, but yeah, Paul Ehrlich was the guy who wrote the population bomb in the 1970s and he predicted basically total catastrophe. And then the other guy bet him and said, no, actually, things are going to be better off in 30 years. And of course, uh, Paul Ehrlich, the doomsday guy, was completely wrong. Not completely, but largely wrong. He was about 58% wrong. And so Simon won the bet, but he didn't win the 100% a bet. So, And Simon was an economist. Paul Ehrlich was an environmentalist and a demographer, environmentalist. And Simon was basically saying that humans are so innovative that they will innovate themselves out of their predicaments and constantly develop you know, further innovations and solve these problems. And um, you're seeing that mainly in Silicon Valley today. When you talk to Peter Diamantis, et cetera, these people that are talking about 
You know, they're so excited that we're going to have another billion people online in the next five years. And how well, there's sorry, but there's Jeff Bezos. I remember quoted him saying uh, that he would love to have a trillion human beings in the next few centuries. Sure. Um, but I mean, but basically, the gist is, is that all these new brains, all of them coming online, all of them becoming educated, you know, Lord knows the exponential creativity that humanity is going to have with this happening. And this is going to happen in the next five to 10 years. This is right around the corner. Um, and so we'll see, I think, whether or not um, uh, we can solve these things in radically new ways that are even beyond the, the current trajectories of what we think we're going to be able to solve. Okay, but why don't you have kids? Um, I'm sterile, Francis. <laughs> okay, that solves it. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, um, I, That's not what your last girlfriend told me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, again, yeah, I, I, have, I stick to my integrity about uh, living light on the planet. And if I ever did have kids, I would just adopt kids. I don't want to create more. I do have the cliche that I think we're kind of a virus. Aren't you an adopted child yourself? <laughs> As well, yes. So You and Steve Jobs. Yes, thank you, uh, Dr. Freud, for that. <laughs> I think you just answered your question. <laughs> but, uh, so, but seriously, um, why, I mean, do you think I'm, do you think that environmentalists should make a bigger deal about population growth and lowering the population growth? Or do you think, you know, this is not really such a thing that we should stress about? Well, I, I think personal integrity uh, is critical, that you need to practice what you preach, obviously. Um, that's easier said than done, especially for Americans uh, living in wealthy communities, etc. Uh, and just the urge to produce. Um, but... Ah, shit. I mean, there's a lot of people who, let's say, try to diminish how much they drive or fly. They, you know, they're, they're recycling that kind of stuff. Well, I think that you know, controlling population is not really the, the answer either. I think we're seeing um, demographic movements that are sort of inevitable that have their own. Um, element that we really can't manipulate that much and what we're seeing is possibly the the earth topping out at 11 12 billion as people become more advanced as women become more educated they have fewer children and that creates a natural topping off point at at that point whatever 50 100 years from now where we're at 12 billion then maybe we want we will approach this again in terms of how we begin to bring that population down whether ai has that solution for us or whether we're off planet or who knows, but I think we have a pretty good idea anyway for the next century at least where we're going in terms of numbers and, and, and that we will eventually get some sort of control, some sort of limit, and therefore some sort of hope, I hope. Okay, so your notion, correct me if I'm wrong, is that, hey, we have this carbon, sequest carbon sequestration technology that's coming online, whether it's the one that you talked about earlier, but some other one, that will allow us to pretty much continue as we're going using fossil fuels as we have been doing. Eventually, they'll run out probably in 50 years. And then that, I guess, will solve the, <laughs> the CO2 problem emission. In 20 years, we'll be done with carbon because we'll have renewable energy, which will surplant 
the use of carbon. And we basically, that's the cutting point. We have to be done in 20 years in terms of the, the atmosphere is concerned. Uh, why do we have to just because of the runaway greenhouse? The runaway greenhouse, uh, the potential emissions of methane in the, in the oceans and in the tundra, which will just further exacerbate it. You know, methane is, what, 23 times more lethal than a CO2 molecule in terms of uh, heating up the planet. So, yeah, that, yeah. if we don't stop, I mean, a lot of people are saying this now. Um, I sound like Donald Trump here. A lot of people are saying, <laughs> if we don't stop in 20 years carbon emissions, or at least put a cap at that point, yeah, it'll be, kind of, it'll be over. I mean, the UN was saying it's probably like seven years away. So there's some sort of window there, but 20 years certainly has got to be the outside limit that we have to stop and begin reducing carbon. It doesn't seem like we're going to do anything. I think that we've been emitting more and more carbon ever since we started first talking about carbon. Nothing's been a, there's been no net decline on a global scale. But by country, there has been. By country, the right. The United States, actually, has, has begun to, has plateaued out right now. And that's a remarkable uh, statistic. So, but, but as a, as a planet, which is what the only thing that really matters, it doesn't seem like we're making any progress on that area. Um, yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, that's why I went back. That's why I started with the issue that this is going to be a technological engineering solution, not a political or social one. We're just too stupid, politically speaking, to, to solve this crisis. And I'm always, I think every year the, the politician is diminishing their power. Meanwhile, the researcher, the engineer, the scientist is increasing. And, and that's the future of, of solutions. So you think that eventually we're going to plateau at around 10 sorry 12 billion maximum and then from there we're going to kind of head down as a species as far as population growth i think well at least plateau out um i don't think no one really knows what will happen once we reach that certain level i.e of the singularity right when that date comes into play the reason they call it the singularity is it's a metaphor of a black hole in the event horizon meaning anything after 2045, it will be 100% impossible to predict even 1% what will happen. So I think we have to cross that bridge when we get there in terms of what would be the next, um, what's, what is the future in terms of human demographics? So what are you going to devote? I mean, if you could, let's say if I gave you a billion dollars and you could kind of devote your time, you would have a think tank, environmental think tank. What would you be researching specifically in that think tank? Um, I would have my offices on a 160-foot yacht. Thank you very much. <laughs> I need to be out in the ocean to be monitoring plankton and uh, zooplankton, phytoplankton populations. And bikinis. That's also a good idea, yeah. All my researchers are on bikinis. Even the men. Even the men. Um, yeah, I, I would like to, yeah, basically... Uh, I'm not an engineer, but I would like to be engineering solutions specifically dedicated to carbon sequestration. That's that would be enough if I could do something along those lines. Eight billion dollars just on just focusing on that. I think that would be a good legacy for the planet. Mm, so, is there money to be made in this field? Good question. I think that. It might be possible if you have uh, government incentives, or you have a government programs that create that on a country-by-country basis. Um, because if there's no profit motive, it's going to be hard to motivate people to just like, 
you know, tell China or India or any of these poorer countries in the United States. I mean, we can barely do it in rich countries. It's hard enough for them to just dig into their pockets. Yeah. So based on that idea, um, I think carbon tax is probably uh, at this stage. I, I don't know. There's probably some more innovative ideas that have come down the pipeline in the last 15 years. The carbon tax thing was something I was dealing with back in 1989 when I was at university um, using a free market principle, so to speak. So I think that, to me, that might be an option. No, I agree. Carbon tax is the most brilliant idea of all the, the ideas out there to kind of help diminish our carbon output. But this doesn't seem to be any kind of political will beyond Sweden. Yeah, so... Um, if we have this type of a system in place um, that is economically viable, that might be an incentive to get governments to to pass legislation, because um, now there's an there's a, a an actual solution for it behind it. I don't know. I don't know. Do you have any suggestions for that? What do you think? Free market principles beyond a carbon tax? Have you thought about that? I mean, the only other one is this cap and trade thing, which I think is 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 inferior model to carbon tax. The carbon tax is the, is the best is the best solution of all it just makes a whole lot of sense you want to tax the thing you want to discourage (laughs) so there's there's no better principle and the more you pump out carbon the more you pay tax it's just such a clean solution so easy to understand and then you can offset it by uh, income tax reduction for example um, especially for the poorest people so that you raise you know we're not going to tax you until you make a hundred thousand dollars and makes that a little bit more attractive to be able to stomach it politically. Well, I think the the typical infantile fantasy of most radical environmentalists is what we really need is a uh, ecological dictator. We need a green Pinochet who will come on, come and make a one world government and say, "I know you don't like this, but we're just going to do this for the, for you, for the benefit of your grandchildren. You're going to suffer big time." <laughs> yeah, I just don't think that's going to happen, <laughs> unless, of course, you have a grand plan yourself. Yeah, it's an infantile fantasy from the left. Okay, I, I don't know, but I, I have to admit, I do think about that at least once a week. <laughs> All right. Well, we will plot and scheme together and try to find a way for you, Tomas, to become head of that uh, movement and and dictator of the world, the environmental dictator. That would be a funny idea. Yes, uh, Mr. Gates for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. My email is Molotov at diplomats dot com. <laughs> um, yeah, so what what would you tell people who are listening to this and you'd say, okay, you know, you care about the environment, you would like to preserve wild spaces, you want to kind of preserve the earth like it is. What should the average Joe who doesn't really want to dedicate their life to this cause do? Should they all become vegetarian and vegan? Um, that would be a good start. I think um, reducing their 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 meat consumption as a whole. Um, I was recently reading a book called The Blue Zones, which was a global study, and they discovered five areas in the world where people live to be 100 years old and what they have in common. One of those things was maximum they ate meat five times a week. So I think <clears throat> yeah, it's just healthy. You know, The human body is herbivoric if you look at the way we're designed physiologically. It's pretty damn clear. So, uh, re- yeah, simple things as reduction. I think yeah, you're not going to get uh, people to do things cold turkey. And, you know, people are not going to quit cold turkey, cold turkey, right? So uh, that's a Zach Galifianakis joke. Um, <laughs> but wait, when you say herbivoric, you mean that we have kind of like the, our intestinal tract and everything like that came from more herbivoric ancestry from other primates. And we only became omnivores kind of late in our 
evolution? Most likely, yes. Just just physiologically, the way our tendons or joints are connected, uh, the enzymes in our stomach, the long intestine, the shape of the colon, the, the size of the teeth, the muscles around the jawbone, it's very, very similar to a gazelle or a giraffe or an antelope. And humans really don't have a whole lot in common with a cat or a lion or a dog or you know, carnivores. We're really, there's not a whole lot of overlap. We really are herbivoric, I think. So anyway, the point being is that I guess you do small things. You know, we have to constantly be educating ourselves and, uh, you know, stop buying Hummers and uh, stop smoking. I don't know. But again, it's so, to me, fascinating that you don't dis- discourage the, the baby production, even though that's something that seems to be that one of the things that you've taken part of. Yeah, I'm not a fan, but uh, I've learned long ago that uh, you can't tell women to stop having babies. That's just what about men. Yeah, I mean, the women's instincts. Well, yeah, but women women are the ones that are basically making the babies, and they'll find a way to do it no matter what. You know, um, you know, I had this conversation so many times with people where I'm adopted. I tell them about how beautiful I think adoption is, whatever. And I will get women who will logically completely agree with me. Yeah, you know what? You're 100 percent right. But then they throw in the butt. But I have the need to produce one. I need to go through the experience of being a mother and fulfilling my destiny as a female entity, i.e. I'm completely irrational and I'm acting like an animal and I have to follow the impulse of, re- of reproduction, right? And God bless women. I love them to death, but that, that just drives me insane. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's hard to fight our biology of millions of years of not millions, really, if you think about organisms, billions of years, that's what life does. Life reproduces. Right, exactly. But it's not all we do, right? It's just like everyone worries about, you know, everyone analyzes evolution from the point of producing babies. But, okay, so I poop. I, I also do that. Life right, poops. Well, right, but, but I think from the from perspective of a man, a man's not worried about producing eight children. He's like, I want to have sex with eight women, right? It's a sex thing more than the, 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 the end result of the sex. Yeah, but the sex thing comes because they wanted to have eight children, at least in the past. Uh, I don't know if you can take that assumption at face value. Really? I mean, come on. Like, if you were a caveman and you had the chance to have sex with eight different women and produce eight different children, from an evo- from a Darwinian perspective, that's a great thing to do. Yeah, but I don't think it went that far. I think man's primitive instincts are so immediate and impulsive that it was just simply about the act itself of reproduction versus the result of the act. Fair enough, but that biological urge comes from his ancestors, his other primates and other animal species, basically everywhere down to a a little amoeba that it wants to kind of reproduce in this urge. Yeah, he may not be thinking intellectually, and nine months later I'm going to become a father of my eighth child. But there's that fundamental urge that comes wired into his brain. Right, right. Well, that and that's your genetics playing tricks on you, right? Because you're not thinking about that child per se. As a typical male, I'm going to make that assumption, forgive me, potentially. Um, you're thinking about the immediate pleasure of the immediate moment. Um, and that's your motivation. Now, in this podcast, we call it the Wander Learn podcast. So we're going to wander to a slightly different topic and talk about your four years in Chile. As you know, my mother is from Chile. And so uh, I have an affinity to this country. Um, What's been your experience like? What are some of the... I like to focus on things that you would learn that 
was not entirely obvious the first time you visited Chile? What took you weeks, months, or even years to figure out among about the Chileans or the country? Well, Chile is a very unique country in relationship to its neighbors. You're in Latin America, but you don't feel like you're in Latin America. Um, the first thing was just the language. I speak Spanish, but when I got to Chile, the first 90 days, I couldn't understand jack squat. Really? No. It was completely... I was so frustrated because I lived for two, two and a half years in Mexico. I thought I spoke Spanish, and I couldn't understand anything. Really? That's so weird because, I mean, my mom, you've heard my mom speak. Uh, she, to me, she doesn't speak like a classic Chilean. She speaks Castellano, you know, kind of a neutral version of Spanish. And so it's not like I got training. Even though my mom's from Chile, she didn't have like the, she wasn't uh, uh, speaking that kind of accent. And yet when I got to, every time I've got to Chile, I haven't been lost. Well, yeah, because you, you grew up in a Chilean household. So. But that's my point, is that, that she doesn't speak mm. like a Chilean. Do you think she speaks like... I mean, you've heard my mom speak. I, I, look, I, I've talked to a lot of uh, recent immigrants from other, uh, other places in Latin America, and they express something similar. So you must be right. Yeah, so it wasn't 90 days for them. Maybe it's only two weeks or four weeks. But wow, the accent is so wildly different. The intonation, slang, of course, is every, every country. But those things in combination, I still to this day, cannot explain to you specifically why it's such a difficult accent. But man, it, I mean, after four years, I'm finally there. But it's taken me a hell of a long time. Wow, that's so fascinating because, like I said, I, I, anyway, I have to trust you on this one. But uh, I've been all over Latin America and probably at least half the countries in Latin America I've been there. And I never find trouble understanding anybody anywhere in Latin America. Yeah, I'd say, you no, know, Chile is by far the most difficult accent in the Maybe it's because I had Spanish since I was a baby, and so I just kind of became a little bit more malleable versus you learned it a little bit later. Yeah, I think so. Because to me, I don't get, I've heard of other people saying, you know, I don't understand Argentinians, like I don't understand, you know, whatever, Puerto Ricans or whatever, you know, that there's these different, to me, Spanish is, hell, even Spanish from Spain, which I think is the most awful sounding Spanish of all, mm-hmm. um, even they, I understand those guys perfectly well, 100%, 90%, or 99%. Yeah, I I've, I understand every, like you, I understand every single other country. I, I can understand the Caribbean accent, yeah. the, the Argentine accent this, this, the, from Spain. Yeah, but Chile, holy crap, it is a totally different universe. It really is. Wow, that's so fascinating. Okay, well, that's uh, one thing I learned. Uh, what else did you, what took you weeks or months to figure out about Chile and the Chileans? Well, like I said, it's unique compared to its neighbors on a lot of levels. One of them, probably the most obvious, the most striking, and maybe not the most optimistic one, is the fact that Chileans aren't aren't really normally that happy compared to other Latinos. Um, they don't smile yeah. almost at all. Um, they don't greet you. You walk down the street in Santiago, and you give eye contact. There's not even a head nod. There's not a smile. Um, maybe there will even be an hola. You know, eye to eye, kind of cold eye contact, hola. Again, not even a, a smile of recognition in that simple salutation. Right. No, it's very true. And uh, it's something that kind of depressed me a bit when I revisited Chile after, because I've been there for about 10 times, but it was always through my youth. And I associated it with a very kind of classic Latin American, open, friendly, kind of happy thing. And when I went back in the mid 1990s, I was surprised. I was there in my mid 20s. I was surprised by how cold and frigid they were. They're kind of like Eastern Europeans, basically. 
Absolutely. And I think that's my, I'm speculating, but I think that's largely due to the Pinochet regime. You know, Pinochet came in and ruled for 15 years, something like that. And um, I think more, maybe because he started in 1973, I think. So that ended in 89. So whatever. But basically, he, you know, he killed 3,000 people. He tortured at least 20,000 and uh, caused a, a reign of terror that affects people to this day. You know, that's. I agree with you, it's Pinochet, but not for the reason you just cited. I, I think it's more has to do with capitalism, and I think that capitalism uh, encourages you to be time-sensitive and to you know hustle and focus and, and put other things like general friendliness and slow down and all that stuff and smell the roses, a lot of the Latino behaviors, to the wayside. And so I think when time becomes money, you have less time to just be free and happy go lucky like many Africans and other Latin Americans. That's a brilliant point. I agree with you, but I don't think it's a primary one because fear and sadness, um, I think, are very much related to the terror of a dictator. And when Pinochet then decided to install a Chicago school system of economics, the most capitalistic form of, of, uh, of an economy in the world, even till this day, I think, um, yeah, that causes a struggle and it created a a decade of massive transition that was really, really tough for the bulk of of middle class and lower class Chileans to adjust to this radical new system, um, which, yeah, still affects them today. It's just the the, the nature of the the, the, in, the inherent coldness of capitalism, if you will. By the way, that was not my stomach rumbling. That was a Yorkshire Terrier that's sitting on uh, Tomas's lap, and he was seeing a bird outside. And so we've got a couple of dogs in here. So in case you occasionally hear a bark or a yell or a growl. It's not Tomas's stomach. <laughs> and in connecting to your point, too, I think, you know, I think these theories have been largely discredited, but sort of anthropological discussions about weather and climate and how that makes culture. But I think there's some truth to that, too. You know, colder climates and, and Chile's majority of its population on these colder, chillier climates also creates a more introverted, internally focused awareness which might also be a part of it yeah i mean I, I i guess they have been disproven i don't know but to me i just see such a strong correlation it seems hard to imagine that there's not on the other hand at the same time you've got argentina right next door which is basically the same latitude as chile and the argentinians have a much more happy disposition compared to chileans in my opinion that's true um the reason for that could be other factors too. The fact that they're a little bit more Eurocentric, a little closer to Europe, and they can... but Europeans are assholes. Yeah, but there's a there's a level of of um, sophistication and um, belief in oneself that I don't know may seem to me anyway to me it makes them seem to be more higher self esteem and maybe therefore a little more happy. I mean, comparing Chileans to Argentines, for example, um, Argentines are much more sophisticated to me they seem more sophisticated more educated more european whereas chile's more the hinterland they're blocked by the andes they're in the corner of the world as they call themselves so they're more of a campesino mentality a little more um straightforward straight talking simpler Mm -hmm. um, compared to their more sophisticated cousins i'd say yeah no i understand that analogy um by the way those who get offended that i say that europeans are assholes i'm half european too so (laughs) Um, anyway, uh, the point is, is that Chile, for you, you were surprised by the relative coldness of the people, 
Um, what surprised you in a good way and what keeps you there? I mean, you're going to be here another week or so in the United States and you're heading back to Chile again. So what something must be good that's bringing you back each time. The food is amazing. Just kidding, no. Actually, the, the, the food is the worst in all the Americas. So I need to put that one in there. Sorry, Chilean people, but it's just true. There, there are no Chilean restaurants in the rest of the world. That's a, that, I love mentioning that kind of point whenever somebody brags, because everywhere you travel, everybody talks about how great their food is, no matter where you go. And I'm like, well, how many Polish restaurants have you seen lately? How many <laughs> restaurants from Estonia have you checked out? I mean, that's a kind of a clue right there, you know. So, but if you go to Thai, you know, Thai restaurants are all over the planet. There's a reason for that. And so, uh, yeah, uh, Chilean food is not known, but uh, Mexican food, yeah. yeah. Well, the market speaks. So, yeah, I, 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 I agree with your point. I, what, I, what I love most about Chile, I would say, is... Um, maybe related to its capitalism, it is very westernized. It is very sophisticated. If if you're doing business in Latin America, it's got to be number one on the list on average for most business professionals. They're much more direct and thoughtful, better infrastructure, high level of education as a whole. There's less BS to their cultural context and protocols that you know would be different in Brazil, for example. It's just it's a much cleaner, more efficient. So it's really a joy, relatively speaking, to do business as a, as a, as a, as a whole. Okay. And uh, do you plan to eventually leave, or you have no idea how much longer you're going to spend in Chile? I, I will leave eventually. I, I have I have no timeline yet. Um, I miss home. I miss the Bay Area. So I'm trying to figure out how to how to have the best of both worlds, if that's possible. But um, for the moment, yeah, I'm just happy being there and. And uh, it's great. All right. Um, and you've also been, let's switch gears again. You've been to Somalia and Kenya. Tell me about those. I mean, you were in Somalia in the worst time in the 1990s, I believe it was, when the real shit hit the fan there. And there was war, civil war going on, hot and heavy. Tell us a little bit about that experience and about your time in Kenya and other parts of Africa I think you might have visited. Sure, yeah. I traveled all through all of Eastern and all of Southern Africa. I know every, all the countries basically in that block all the way down. But mostly I lived in Kenya and Somalia. Yeah, I went as a volunteer medical worker um, in 90, 1993, 94. Um, during the war, just just a few months after Black Hawk Down, basically. And um, yeah, it was an amazing experience. I worked with a, a medical team called American uh, Refugee Committee, and we set up a mobile immunization program, built a, a clinic. Uh, we set up a, a midwife program, and then we trained uh, community healthcare workers. And we were doing with schistosomiasis and cholera and basic heavy duty, you know, simple, relatively simple ailments. It was surreal. Yeah, it was a, it was a war zone. Uh, I lost friends. They killed a, a UNICEF friend of mine. I saw crazy ass stuff. Somalia is very independent people. Um, they do like violence. They have kind of American qualities in some way. They love guns and, and their freedom. And uh, 70% nomad. So it's really not fit to be a nation state because it's just not in the culture at all. So that's part of the problem. 
Um, but at the same time, it was one of the most exciting experiences of my life. And I've always wanted to get together with a screenplay writer because I think there's a great movie about all these international relief workers from all the world coming with all these different skills and all their weird politics and all the weird communication issues, all this you know, hyper multicultural environment. And at the same time, we had 22 different militaries from around the world. We had the Botswanans and the Indians and the French and the, the Belgians and 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 Russians and on and on and on. So then we had all these other weird additional layers of of clash and whatnot. So, um, for example, my team, I had a Kenyan doctor, a um, a Serbian doctor, although his mother was from San Francisco. He was 25% American. Uh, Vladimir Dilijinsky, amazing guy. Um, and then two American nurses. And myself, and then we had a team of about 30 Somali staff. And uh, so Vladimir spoke Russian, and the UN had contracted these Russian helicopters, these MI-16 and MI-32s. I think these huge, giant helicopters, some of the biggest in the world. And these pilots didn't speak um, English. So we had an up on, on everybody else because we had a, a Russian speaker, so we got first treatment, and we got to get carried around and got our supplies a lot more efficiently. And these guys were really funny. They'd brought over, these Russian pilots had brought over this giant tank full of kind of some kind of ethanol but it was drinkable and uh, they brought over this with them because this was the stuff to defrost the windshields in Somalia and somehow they got it through so they were black marketing super cheap booze and they had just huge quantities of it you know so so funny (laughs) Um, how was it like flying into Mogadishu um it was surreal, uh, Mogadishu and Kismayo. Kismayo was the other major town uh, just south. And um, that's and I didn't when I went to Somalia. I was only in northern part, you know, in Somalia land. I didn't go to Puntland. I didn't go to Somalia land proper. Somalia proper like Mogadishu. So I'm curious about how it was and if you've been staying up with the news and seeing how it's evolved. Uh, to answer the, the latter part first, yeah, it's depressing. Uh, nothing's changing. It's, it's static. At least it's not complete mayhem as it was back back in the day. But it's not. It's not going well. It's things are things are, are pretty pretty much plateaued out. And there's about a there's usually a suicide bomb every like once a month or at least a few times a year. Yeah. In Mogadishu. Yeah, and you have the Al Qaeda version called Al Shabaab, which right. is. Uh, fundamentalists they're on the way out they're not doing well but they're there and they're fanatics and they're fundamentalists and that does not work in Somalia it really doesn't do you see and uh, you know something at the end of the rainbow something at the end of this kind of things go in cycles Tomas I mean it's like people are in the doldrums and the bad things they don't always stay in the shithole forever eventually they kind of climb out of these things and eventually kind of move on as a nation as a region so there's got to be an end in sight, no? Or you just think, you know, for this century, they're pretty much still going to be down in the doldrums. Um, I, I, going back to the point about there being 70% nomad, I mean, that's a big, big problem. Yeah, but we were 100% nomad as a species everywhere on the planet a while back, and eventually some people kind of got out of their nomadic habits, and now we're not. Well, on that level, yeah, we could be, look, but we look, at that level, I think you're looking at a timeline of 200 years, and that's not, a, that's not acceptable. We need to be solving these problems in decades, not centuries, no? Fair enough. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not involved in it anymore. I don't see it a lot. I, I sort of grieve a bit because I wish I was more of an expert on Somalia. We need more people in the West that know, know it. Kenya. How about Kenya? 
Kenya is a lot better off. It's a, it's a totally different context in every way that I know of. It's, what were you doing there? Well, I was working for American Refugee Committee, and our, our offices were based in Nairobi. So I, I was in the field in Somalia, but then I was back uh, in the offices in Nairobi, which was, again, night and day. You know, Kenya has nothing to do with Somalia culturally, geographically. I mean, it's next, next door to each other, but other than that, they really don't have anything, anything related. No, it's true. They are worlds apart, especially if you compare Nairobi to Mogadishu. I mean, I'm sure it's even bigger. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, you're more optimistic about uh, the future of Kenya, I suppose? Yes, uh, I am. I think Kenya is a much more advanced, much more westernized, much more sophisticated culture. They have their tourism dollars come in where Somalia doesn't have that luxury. Um, hey, I spent a lot of tourism dollars when I went to Somalia. Yeah, all 475, <laughs> you cheap rat bastard. <laughs> right, exactly. No, but I think that they still have the, you have the warlords and the, and the, clan, the, clan, the clans of Somalia. And meanwhile, in Kenya, you have the tribes. So how different is that? Well, now you're opening up a whole other can of worms, and that's really sort of Africa now. <laughs> We're talking about Africa and, and the, the tribal aspects of their politics, which is a you know a big big challenge right that's not just kenya that's anywhere in sub-saharan africa i'd say right but is it not just sub-saharan africa is it just human in other words you have some tribalism that goes on certainly in just if you expanded to the political you know like the tribe of the democrats tribe of the republicans tribes of the macrons versus the uh, le pens in france and you know there's so much tribalism is something that's just fundamentally human i mean we are primates Absolutely, but there's a big, yeah, we're innately tribalistic, just like we're all Africans 60,000 years ago. But there's a big difference between traditional tribalism in its form, which is in full flourish still in Africa, where it isn't in the rest of the world. But I mean, the, I think tribalism kind of manifests itself, let's say, when, let's say, somebody like Donald Trump says, you know, oh, the Mexicans at the border, or the, you know, how they look at Hispanics or even blacks and that kind of stuff. There's that issue of, you know, the way race politics is and racism mm -hmm. is. There's that to me is kind of a, a manifestation of classic tribalism, no? I think the engine might be tribalism, but I think it's just f overt racism on the face. That's what Donald Trump is. Okay, but maybe, but I guess maybe, I just, Maybe I'm splitting hairs here about whether racism qualifies as tribalism. It's it's bigotry, right? There's all kinds of bigotry. In in in, in Somalia, it was clanism, right? In in India, it's casteism. In Latin America, it's a lot of classism. It's a big thing. I mean, that's a big thing about Latin America that drives me crazy. Is just how radically classist it is. It's really debilitating to the cultures. I think. Mm. Uh, any other parts of Africa that you had experience with, Tomas? Um, yeah, I've been through Zimbabwe, Zambia, Malawi, Botswana, South Africa. I was actually in South Africa for the elections of Nelson Mandela. So they were looking for international observers to, for the elections, and he was my hero, role model back in the day. And um, so and I wanted to be part of history, so I went to South Africa and as a volunteer, and I was in uh, Durban. Yeah, it was crazy. A bomb went off. It was a Sunday morning. It was quiet, and these these assholes um, loaded a car to, to blow up an ANC office and ended up blowing themselves up before they got in front of the office. Really? Yeah, took out all these glass, was shattered through a couple blocks in downtown Durban. Wow. 
You know, it reminds me a bit of themselves. Wow, that reminds me a bit about an experience with uh, my wife, Rejoice Tapon, who was living with a suicide bomber in Borno State in Nigeria. He was a guy for Boko Haram, and he strapped himself up one day, and he was walking somewhere, and then he got about 100 meters away from his house, and he also blew himself up. He didn't die, but both of his legs were severed, and he eventually died the next day. And he didn't kill anybody. He just accidentally set off the bomb. Uh, this is your wife's roommate? Uh, not roommate. Um, they were living in the same compound, uh, so it's a small... I mean, they, they were... In Africa, there's a lot, as you probably know, there's uh, houses and they, let's say, have two or three families in a small compound. And so she knew the guy. He was very friendly. He would give her oranges sometimes and other gifts and that kind of stuff. He he seemed totally benign. And nobody, including his wife, had any idea that he was building suicide, building bombs in his little garage there. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I I don't know the statistics are on this, but amateur bomb makers, it's a super dangerous <laughs> profession. Okay. So that's your tip of the day. Don't become an amateur bomb maker. Thank you, Francis, <laughs> for pointing out the obvious. <laughs> um, okay. So Anyway, uh, let's wrap it up, and I just want to get some final thoughts uh, regarding um, your, wrap it up to the beginning of what we talked about, the environmental stuff. Um, Any other words of wisdom that you have regarding the environment, and where should we look to find Mr. Tomas making a difference here? Um, I go back to the point about the uh, parabola. You know, I think that we're looking at, you know, Everything else is just cosmetic by comparison. If we're not working on these fundamental issues, what the hell are you doing with your life, really, you know? I mean, like, yeah, I do some role-playing game stuff, um, but it's not the essence of what I am because I don't find it pertinent to creating a good legacy and contributing something to to humanity and the planet. So I go back again to trying to look at the world based on trying to understand ecological catastrophes, trying to guess when and how these things are going to happen, and then figure out how we're going to solve this before we get to that point. Um, and that's a, a big part of the, what runs around in my head day in, day out. I don't think that humanity has much of a chance of completely dis- annihilating themselves and becoming an extinct species. I think it's less than 10% that that would ever happen, maybe 5%. But we might end up killing a few billion people or something like that. That that could happen. And that is absolutely unacceptable. That is absolutely unacceptable. I'm not I'm not yeah, I'm not looking at an absolute, you know, nihilistic existential crisis. I don't see it that way either, but I do see yeah, you know, if 15% of humanity is on the move as ecological nomads like this supposed caravan from Honduras, that'll suck up the entire G- GDP of the globe just to be able to manage a 15% move of humanity. It's 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 really insane, and it's not a pipe dream. This stuff is real. It's very. It's almost inevitable right now. All right. On that happy note. <laughs> All right. <laughs> nice talking with you, Tomas, and let's not have another seven years pass between us, between our next visit. Thanks, Francis. It's been great.
And that concludes this episode of the WanderLearn podcast, where we explore travel technology and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question, then go to wanderlearn.com and click on the latest episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember F Tapon. That's my first initial and my last name. F Tapon is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. Here's one last reason to remember F Tapon. If you like what I do and want to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash, yep, you guessed it, ftapon. That's where you can pick up some sweet rewards for as little as $1 a month. And remember, subscribing to the WanderLearn podcast helps, but downloading each episode helps even more. Please share the podcast, review it, and sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. This show was edited by Rejoice Tapon. The music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon, encouraging you to wander and learn.